This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and can I warmly welcome you to the Sheldonian Theatre this evening uh, for the talk that we're just about to hear, Is God a Delusion? Uh, my name's Robbie Strachan. Uh, I'm the president of the Christian Union here at Oxford University. And it is a delight to be joined this evening by William Lane Craig, um, who will just be in a moment giving a lecture in response to Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Now, it would have been great to be able to welcome Professor Richard Dawkins here this evening for public debate. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is instead a great privilege to be joined by Professor Peter Millikan, who is the Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at Hartford College, Oxford. He's going to be chairing uh, the evening, and I really hope that you enjoy the evening this evening. Thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to welcome William Lane Craig to talk to us tonight. Uh, for the last 15 years, he's been Research Professor of Philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology in La Mirada, California. He's the author of over 30 books and over 100 peer-reviewed articles in philosophy and theology. I'm just going to mention uh, a couple of those books. The Cosmological Argument from Plato to Leibniz, uh, that's actually my own copy, dated 1980. Uh, I got it when studying the B. Phil here, studying philosophy of religion under Basil Mitchell. And it was clear even then that uh, Bill's book was a new landmark in discussion of the cosmological argument. Uh, more recently, 2009, one of his uh, latest contributions is the monumental Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, uh, which he jointly edited. Uh, no less than 700 pages and a snip at 125 pounds. <laughs> Another book I'll particularly mention is this one, uh, God, a Debate Between a Christian and an Atheist, uh, jointly done with uh, Walter Sinnott Armstrong. It grew out of a debate they did together and I think, uh, it, it, I can't think of a better book to recommend if you want to see the theist and atheist points of view put robustly um, but with respect and a very energetic argument. Bill has a particular connection with Britain. He actually did his PhD in philosophy under John Hick at the University of Birmingham uh, back in 1977. Yes. Uh, Birmingham actually is where I debated uh, with Bill on Friday and we had a spirited debate so I'm in the other camp, but uh, you won't be hearing much from me tonight apart from directing proceedings. If you want to know what I think about these things, I think our debate is soon to appear on the web. After doing the PhD in philosophy, Bill also took a doctorate in theology under the celebrated theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg at Munich. So he's extremely uh, well prepared on both sides. In my debate on Friday, our debate on Friday, I, I realised what it's like dealing with such an extremely well-prepared opponent, where it's very hard to come up with things that he hasn't heard before and thought through. 
Uh, it will be very interesting tonight to hear what he has to say on Richard Dawkins' arguments. The pattern for tonight will be that Bill will be speaking for 45 or 50 minutes. Uh, we then have three Oxford academics who have kindly offered to come representing a range of views to comment on what Bill has to say. Bill is then going to be given a chance to respond to them and then we'll have a short break. Now, cards have been given out to the audience. If you haven't got one, then in that break, please feel free to ask one of the ushers for one. In those card, on those cards, um, you are welcome to write questions. Also, you're welcome to tell us whom, to whom you would like the question to be addressed. Our three speakers are Daniel Kame, Stephen Priest, and John Parrington, and I'll be saying a little bit more about them uh, in turn when we introduce them. But if one of them, as well as Bill, says something uh, to which you'd like to respond, feel free to do so. Those questions will come to me during the break, and then I shall try to sort through them and pick ones that are uh, particularly representative of the questions that have been asked and give our speakers a chance to respond to them. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to William Lane Craig uh, for the, on the subject, Is God a Delusion? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is a privilege to be here with you this evening and speaking in such an august setting as this. Uh, during the years that Jan and I lived in England while I was doing my doctoral studies at the University of Birmingham, we grew to have a deep affection for this country and for people, and so it is truly a joy and a delight for us to be back in the UK and to be participating in this speaking tour, including the event tonight. A couple years ago, I published an article in which I described the renaissance among contemporary philosophers concerning arguments for the existence of God. And it was fascinating to read the discussion in the blogosphere in response to this article. Along with expressions of appreciation, there were also comments like the following. Dawkins' The God Delusion soundly deals with these arguments. Did you even do any research? <laughs> or again, have you even read Dawkins' apostrophe S book? He answers every one of those arguments quite well. Or again, I was dismayed that Dr. Craig has used these arguments to defend the existence of God. As someone mentioned before, has he even read Dawkins' book? Well, what is remarkable about these comments is the degree of confidence placed in Richard Dawkins' supposed refutation of the arguments for God's existence. Are they right? Has Richard Dawkins dealt the death blow to these theistic arguments that I discussed? Well, I propose this evening to look at those arguments and see what Dawkins has to say about each one. Now, since our time is very limited tonight, I can consider only the objections that Richard Dawkins himself raises. Doubtless, you can think of other objections. Full of fuller treatment, I would refer you to my book, Reasonable Faith, or the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. 
to begin with then, the cosmological argument. Dawkins doesn't even discuss the first form of the cosmological argument, which I mentioned in my article, namely the argument from contingency. Now this is a remarkable oversight since it's the most famous version of the cosmological argument. Indeed, it would be deserving to be called the standard form of the cosmological argument. So obviously it isn't the case that Richard Dawkins has refuted all the arguments that I surveyed in my article. But Dawkins does discuss a different type of cosmological argument, which may be formulated as follows. Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Once we reach the conclusion that the universe has a cause, we can analyze what properties such a cause must have. Now premise one, that everything that begins to exist has a cause, seems obviously true, at least more so than its negation. To suggest that things could just pop into being, uncaused, out of nothing, is to quit doing serious metaphysics and to resort to magic. Premise two, that the universe began to exist, can be supported by both philosophical argument and scientific evidence. The philosophical arguments aim to show that there cannot have been an infinite regress of past events, or in other words, that the series of past events must have had a beginning. The philosophical arguments against an infinite regress of events are fascinating and mind-expanding, but we needn't consider them this evening since Dawkins doesn't object to any of these arguments. The scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe is based on the expansion of the universe. We now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning a finite time ago. In 2003, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe which has on average been in a state of cosmic expansion throughout its history cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a past space-time boundary. Even if our universe is just a tiny part of a so-called multiverse composed of many universes, their theorem requires that the multiverse itself must have an absolute beginning. Of course, highly speculative scenarios, such as loop quantum gravity models, string models, even closed time-like curves have been proposed to try to avoid this absolute beginning. Although these models are all fraught with problems, the bottom line is that none of these theories, even if true, succeeds in restoring an eternal past. At most, they just push the beginning back a step. Vilenkin pulls no punches. He writes, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide 
behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end quote. Now it follows from the two premises of the argument that therefore the universe has a cause. What properties must the cause of the universe possess? Well, by the very nature of the case, as the cause of space and time, this entity must transcend space and time and therefore exist non-temporally and non-spatially, at least without the universe. This transcendent cause must also therefore be changeless and immaterial, since anything that is timeless must be unchanging, and anything that is changeless must be non-physical and immaterial, since material things are constantly changing on at least the molecular and atomic levels. Such a cause must be beginningless and uncaused at least in the sense of lacking any prior causal conditions, since there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. Occam's razor, the principle that says we should not multiply causes beyond necessity, will shave away any further causes, since only one cause is required to explain the effect. This entity must be unimaginably powerful if not omnipotent, since it created the universe without any material cause. Finally, and most remarkably, such a transcendent first cause is plausibly personal. Two reasons can be given for this conclusion. First, the personhood of the first cause of the universe is implied by its timelessness and immateriality. The only entities which can possess such properties are either unembodied minds or abstract objects like numbers. But abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. The number seven, for example, can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows logically that the transcendent cause of the origin of the universe is an unembodied mind or consciousness. Second, this same conclusion is also implied by the origin of an effect with a beginning from a beginningless cause. We've concluded that the beginning of the universe was the effect of a first cause. By the nature of the case, that cause cannot have either a beginning of its existence or any prior cause. It just exists changelessly, without beginning and a finite time ago, it brought the universe into existence. Now, this is exceedingly odd. The cause is in some sense eternal, and yet the effect which it produced is not eternal, but began to exist a finite time ago. How can this be? If the necessary and sufficient conditions for the effect are eternal, then why isn't the effect also eternal? How can the cause exist without the effect? There seems to be only one way out of this dilemma, and that is to say that the cause of the universe's beginning is a personal agent endowed with free will 
who freely chooses to create a universe in time. Philosophers call this type of causation agent causation, and because the agent is free, he can spontaneously initiate new effects by freely bringing about conditions which were not previously present. And thus a finite time ago, a creator endowed with free will could have freely brought the world into being at that moment. In this way, the creator could exist changelessly and eternally, but freely create the universe in time. By exercising his causal power, he brings it about that a world with a beginning comes to exist. Since the cause, uh, so the cause can be eternal, but the effect is not. In this way, then, it seems that it's possible for a temporal universe to have come into being from an eternal cause through the free will of a personal creator. We may therefore conclude that a personal creator of the universe exists who is uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful. Now, Dawkins does, as I say, address this version of the cosmological argument. Remarkably, however, he doesn't dispute either premise of the argument. Instead, he merely questions the theological significance of the argument's conclusion. He writes, and I quote, even if we allow the dubious luxury of arbitrarily conjuring up a terminator to an infinite regress and giving it a name, there is absolutely no reason to endow that terminator with any of the properties normally ascribed to God, omnipotence, omniscience, goodness, creativity of design, to say nothing of such human qualities as listening to prayers, forgiving sins, and reading innermost thoughts. Now, apart from the opening slur, this is a remarkably concessionary statement. Dawkins doesn't dispute that the argument proves the existence of an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful personal creator of the universe. He merely complains that this cause hasn't also been shown to be omnipotent, omniscient, good, creative of design, listening to prayers, forgiving sins, and reading innermost thoughts. So what? <laughs> the argument was never intended to prove such things. It would be a bizarre form of atheism, indeed one not worth the name, which admitted that there exists an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful personal creator of the universe, who may, for all we know, also possess the further properties listed by Dawkins. We needn't call the personal creator of the universe God if Dawkins finds this unhelpful or misleading, but the point remains that such a being as is here described must exist. Secondly, the moral argument. Here's a simple moral argument for God's existence. Premise one, if God does not exist, 
then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Three, therefore, God exists. What makes this little argument so powerful is not only that it's logically ironclad, but also that people generally believe both premises. In fact, Dawkins himself seems to be committed to the truth of both premises. With respect to premise one, that if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist, Dawkins informs us, and I quote, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being." End quote. But although he says that there is no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference, the fact is that Richard Dawkins is a stubborn moralist. He vigorously condemns such actions as the harassment and abuse of homosexuals, the religious indoctrination of children, the Incan practice of human sacrifice, and prizing cultural diversity over the interests of Amish children. He even goes so far as to offer his own amended Ten Commandments for guiding moral behavior, all the while marvelously oblivious to the contradiction with his ethical subjectivism. Thus, affirming both premises of the moral argument, Dawkins is, on pain of irrationality, committed to the argument's conclusion, namely, that God exists. Thirdly, the teleological argument. The cutting edge of contemporary discussion of the teleological or design argument concerns the remarkable fine-tuning of the cosmos for life. Dawkins responds to this form of the argument in chapter four of his book under the heading, The Anthropic Principle Cosmological Version. Here's a simple formulation of a teleological argument based on fine-tuning. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Now, with respect to premise one, I'd better explain what is meant by fine-tuning. This expression does not mean designed, otherwise the argument would be obviously circular. Rather, during the last 40 years or so, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. Were nature's fundamental constants and quantities to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the life-permitting balance would be destroyed and no living interactive organisms could exist. Dawkins himself, citing the work of the astronomer royal Sir Martin Rees, acknowledges that the universe does exhibit this remarkable fine-tuning. 
Now, premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design, simply lists the three possibilities for explaining the presence of this amazing fine-tuning of the universe. The question is, which of these al alternatives is the most plausible? Premise two addresses that question. The first alternative, physical necessity, is extraordinarily implausible because the constants and the quantities are independent of the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants and quantities. So, for example, the most promising candidate for a theory of everything to date, uh, M theory or superstring theory, allows for a cosmic landscape of around 10 to the 500th power different possible universes governed by the present laws of nature. Dawkins notes that Sir Martin Rees rejects this first alternative, physical necessity, and Dawkins adds his own comment, I think I agree. So what about the second alternative, that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to chance? The problem with this alternative is that the odds against the universe's being life-permitting are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. In order to rescue the alternative of chance, therefore, its proponents have been forced to adopt the remarkable hypothesis that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse uh, of which our universe is but a part. Somewhere in this infinite ensemble, uh, finely tuned universes will appear by chance alone, and we happen to be in one such world. This is the explanation that Richard Dawkins finds most plausible. Now, Dawkins is acutely sensitive to the charge that postulating a world ensemble of randomly ordered universes seems to be what he calls an unparsimonious extravagance. But, he retorts, and I quote, the multiverse may seem extravagant in sheer number of universes, but if each one of those universes is simple in its fundamental laws, we are still not postulating anything highly improbable." End quote. Unfortunately, this response is multiply confused. First, each universe in the ensemble is not simple, but is characterized by a multiplicity of constants and quantities. If each universe were simple, then why did Dawkins feel the need to recur to the hypothesis of a world ensemble in the first place? Second, Dawkins assumes that the simplicity of the whole is a function of the simplicity of the parts. But this is an obvious mistake. A complex mosaic, for example, is made up of a great number of individually simple parts. In the same way, an ensemble of simple universes will still be complex 
if those universes are randomly ordered in the values of their fundamental constants and quantities, rather than all sharing the same values. Third, Occam's razor tells us not to multiply entities beyond necessity, so that the number of universes being postulated simply to explain the fine-tuning is, at face value, extravagant, appealing to a world ensemble to explain fine-tuning is like using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. Fourth, Dawkins tries to minimize the extravagance of the postulate of a world ensemble by claiming that despite its extravagant number of entities, still such a postulate is not highly improbable. But it's not clear why this rejoinder is relevant or even what it means. The objection under consideration is not that the postulate of a world ensemble is improbable, but that it's extravagant and unparsimonious. To say that the postulate isn't also improbable is to fail to address the objection. Indeed, it's hard to know what probability Dawkins is talking about here. He seems to mean the intrinsic probability of the postulate of a world ensemble considered apart from the evidence of fine-tuning. But how is such a probability to be determined? By simplicity? But then Dawkins hasn't shown the world ensemble hypothesis to be simple. What Dawkins needs to say, it seems to me, if I might offer a suggestion, is that the postulate of an ensemble of universes may still be simple if there is a simple mechanism which through a repetitive process generates the many worlds. In that way, the huge number of entities postulated is not a deficit of the theory because the entities all issue from a very simple fundamental mechanism. So, what mechanisms does Dawkins propose for generating such an infinite, randomly ordered world ensemble? Well, he suggests two. First, he suggests an oscillating model of the universe, according to which the universe has gone through an infinite series of expansions and contractions. Dawkins is, however, apparently unaware of the many difficulties of oscillatory models of the universe, which have made contemporary cosmologists quite skeptical of them. Such models contradict the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorems. The evidence of observational astronomy has been consistently against the hypothesis that the universe will someday recontract, and the thermodynamic properties of such models imply the very beginning of the universe that their proponents sought to avoid. But leave all that aside. Even if the universe could oscillate from eternity past, ironically, such a universe would require an infinitely precise fine-tuning of initial conditions in order to persist through an infinite series of expansions and contractions. So that the mechanism that Dawkins postulates for generating as many worlds 
is not simple. In fact, quite the opposite. It requires infinite fine-tuning. Moreover, such a universe involves fine-tuning of a very bizarre sort because the initial conditions have to be set at minus infinity in the past. But how can that be done if there was no beginning? Dawkins' second suggested mechanism for generating a world ensemble is Lee Smolin's evolutionary cosmology, according to which black holes are portals to baby universes being birthed by our universe. Universes which produce lots of black holes therefore have an evolutionary advantage in producing more offspring. Now since black holes are the result of star formation and stars favor planets where life can evolve, the unintended effect of evolutionary cosmology is to make life-permitting universes more probable. Dawkins acknowledges that not all physicists are enthusiastic about Smolin's scenario. Talk about an understatement. For Smolin's scenario, wholly apart from its ad hoc and even disconfirmed conjectures, encountered insuperable difficulties. First, a fatal flaw in Smolin's scenario was his assumption that universes which produce lots of black holes would also produce lots of stable stars. In fact, the exact opposite is true. The most proficient producers of black holes would be universes which generate primordial black holes prior to star formation, so that life-permitting universes would actually be weeded out by Smolin's evolutionary scenario. Thus it turns out that Smolin's scenario would actually make the existence of a life-permitting universe even more improbable. Second, speculations about the universe's begetting baby universes via black holes seems to contradict quantum physics. The conjecture that black holes may be portals of wormholes through which bubbles of vacuum energy can tunnel to spawn new expanding baby universes was the subject of a bet between Stephen Hawking and John Preskill, which Hawking finally admitted in 2004 that he had lost. The conjecture would require that the information which is locked up in a black hole could be utterly lost forever by escaping to another universe. One of the last holdouts, Hawking finally came to agree that quantum theory requires that information is preserved in black hole formation and evaporation. The implications, Hawking writes, there is no baby universe branching off as I once thought. The information remains firmly in our universe. I'm sorry to disappoint science fiction fans, but if information is preserved, there is no possibility of using black holes to travel to other universes." End quote. Now, if this result is correct, then Smolin's scenario is literally physically impossible. 
These are the only two mechanisms that Dawkins suggests for generating an ensemble of randomly ordered universes. Neither of them is even tenable, much less simple. Dawkins has therefore failed to turn back the objection that his postulation of a randomly ordered world ensemble of universes is an unparsimonious extravagance. But there are even more formidable objections to the postulate of a world ensemble of which Dawkins is apparently unaware. Roger Penrose has argued forcefully that if our universe is just a random member of a world ensemble, it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing an island of order no larger than our solar system. Observable universes like those are simply much more plenteous in the world ensemble than worlds like ours, and therefore ought to be observed by us. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the multiverse hypothesis. On atheism, at least then, it is highly probable that there is no world ensemble. The fine-tuning of the universe is therefore plausibly due neither to physical necessity nor to chance. It therefore follows that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to design, unless the design hypothesis can be shown to be even more implausible than its competitors. And Dawkins contends that the alternative of design is indeed inferior to the many worlds hypothesis. Summarizing what he calls the central argument of my book, Dawkins insists that even in the admitted absence of a strongly satisfying explanation for the fine tuning in physics, still the relatively weak explanations we have at present are, and I quote, self-evidently better than the self-defeating hypothesis of an intelligent designer, end quote. Really, what is this powerful objection to the design hypothesis that renders it self-evidently inferior to the admittedly weak many worlds hypothesis? Well, here it is. We are not justified in inferring design as the best explanation of the complex order of the universe because then a new problem arises, namely, who designed the designer? Notice that because Dawkins erroneously thinks that the world ensemble is simple, it never even occurs to him to ask who designed the world ensemble. But this question, who designed the designer, is apparently supposed to be so crushing that it outweighs all the admitted problems with the world ensemble hypothesis. Dawkins' objection, however, has no weight for at least two reasons. First, in order to recognize that an explanation is the best, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. This is an elementary point in philosophy of science. If archaeologists digging in the earth were to unearth things looking like arrowheads and pottery shards, 
they would be justified in inferring that these artifacts are not the chance result of sedimentation and metamorphosis, but rather the products of an unknown group of people, even if they had no idea whatsoever who these people were or where they came from. Similarly, if astronauts were to discover a pile of machinery on the backside of the moon, they would be justified in inferring that it was the product of intelligent agents, even if they had no idea whatsoever who these agents were or how they got there. In order to recognize an explanation as the best, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. In fact, when you think about it, such a requirement would lead to an infinite regress of explanations so that nothing could ever be explained and science would be destroyed. For before any explanation could be acceptable, you'd need an explanation of it. And then an explanation of the explanation of the explanation. And then an explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the explanation. And so on to infinity, nothing could ever be explained if you accept Dawkins' requirement. So, in the case at hand, in order to recognize that intelligent design is the best explanation of the appearance of design in the universe, one doesn't need to be able to explain the designer. Whether the designer has an explanation can be simply left as an open question for future inquiry. Secondly, Dawkins thinks that in the case of a divine designer of the universe, that is to say, if the designer is identified as God, then the designer is just as complex as the thing to be explained, so that no explanatory advance is made. Now this objection raises all sorts of interesting questions about the role played by simplicity in assessing competing explanations. Um, for example, there are many other factors besides simplicity that scientists weigh in determining which explanation is the best, such as explanatory power, explanatory scope, plausibility, and so forth. An explanation which has broader explanatory scope may be less simple than a rival explanation, but still preferred because it explains more things. Simplicity is not the only or even the most important criterion for assessing theories. But again, leave those questions aside. Dawkins' more fundamental mistake lies in his assumption that God is just as complex an entity as the universe. That is plainly false. As a pure mind or consciousness without a body, God is a remarkably simple entity. A mind or a soul is not a physical object composed of parts. In contrast to the contingent and variegated universe with all its inexplicable constants and quantities, a divine mind is startlingly simple. Dawkins protests, and I quote, a God capable of constantly monitoring, controlling the individual status of every particle in the universe cannot be simple, end quote. This is just confused. 
Certainly, a mind may have complex ideas. Uh, it may be thinking, for example, of the infinitesimal calculus. But the mind itself is a remarkably simple, non-physical entity. Dawkins has evidently confused a mind's ideas, uh, which may indeed be complex, with the mind itself, which is an incredibly simple entity, since it has no parts. Therefore, postulating a divine mind behind the universe most definitely does represent an advance in simplicity, for whatever that's worth. Dawkins' central argument in his book thus fails to show that the alternative of design is in any way inferior to the many worlds hypothesis. Indeed, his uh, self-congratulatory attitude about this pitiful argument sustained even in the face of repeated correction by prominent philosophers and theologians like Richard Swinburne and Keith Ward is marvelous. Therefore, of the three alternatives before us, physical necessity, chance, or design, the most plausible of the three as an explanation of the cosmic fine-tuning is design. Finally, the ontological argument. The next argument to be discussed by Dawkins, and the last that I have time to review, is the famous ontological argument. The version I presented comes from Alvin Plantinga. It's formulated in terms of possible worlds semantics. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the terminology of possible worlds, let me explain that by a possible world, one doesn't mean a planet or a universe uh, or any sort of concrete entity, but rather just a complete description of reality or a way reality might have been. To say that God exists in some possible world is just to say that there's a possible description of reality which includes the statement, God exists, as part of that description. Now, in his version of the argument, Plantinga conceives of God as a being which is maximally excellent in every possible world. Plantinga takes maximal excellence to include properties such as omniscience, omnipotence, and moral perfection. A being which has maximal excellence in every possible world would have what Plantinga calls maximal greatness. Now, Plantinga argues as follows. One, it's possible that a maximally great being, a.k.a. God, exists. Two, if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. Five, if a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Six, therefore, a maximally great being, or God, exists. Now, it might surprise you to learn that steps two to six of this argument are relatively uncontroversial. Most philosophers would agree that if God's existence is even possible, then 
he must exist. The principal issue to be settled with respect to Plantinga's ontological argument is what warrant exists for thinking the key premise. It's possible that a maximally great being exists to be true. The idea of a maximally great being is intuitively a coherent idea, and so it seems plausible that such a being could exist. In order for the ontological argument to fail, the concept of a maximally great being must be incoherent, like the concept of a married bachelor. But the concept of a maximally great being doesn't seem even remotely incoherent. This provides some prima facie warrant for thinking that it is possible that a maximally great being exists. Dawkins devotes six full pages, brimming with ridicule and invective to the ontological argument, without raising any serious objection to Plantinga's argument. He notes in passing Immanuel Kant's objection that existence is not a perfection. But since Plantinga's argument doesn't presuppose that it is, we can leave that irrelevance aside. He also reiterates a parody of the argument designed to show that God does not exist because a God who created everything while not existing is greater than one who exists and created everything. Ironically, this parody, far from undermining the ontological argument, actually reinforces it. For a being who creates everything while not itself existing is a logical incoherence and therefore is impossible. There is no possible world which includes a non-existent being which creates the world. If the atheist is to maintain, as he must, that God's existence is impossible, the concept of God would have to be similarly incoherent. But it's not, and that supports the plausibility of premise one, that it's possible that a maximally great being exists. Dawkins also chortles, I've forgotten the details, but I once piqued a gathering of theologians and philosophers by adopting, adapting the ontological argument to prove that pigs can fly. They felt the need to resort to modal logic to prove that I was wrong. Well, this is just embarrassing. The ontological argument just is an exercise in modal logic, the logic of the necessary and the possible. I can just imagine what the philosophers and theologians whom Dawkins peaked at that conference must have been thinking. Well, I'm out of time. There are other arguments to be discussed. Doubtless, you can think of substantive objections to the arguments that I have discussed. But at least I hope to have shown that the objections raised by Richard Dawkins to these arguments are not even injurious, much less deadly. Thank you very much, Bill. Plenty of food for thought there. Uh, you can imagine uh, I'm 
itching to respond myself, having been in the position of doing so on Friday, but uh, I must not. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, we now move on to our, our panel. Uh, as I mentioned before, three Oxford academics. Uh, Daniel Kame is lecturer in philosophy at St Hugh's College, Oxford, and has recently made quite an impact on the blogosphere, uh, discussing tonight and whether uh, Richard Dawkins would or should come. Uh, Stephen Priest is also in the philosophy faculty at Oxford, senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall. And John Parrington is lecturer in pharmacology and tutor in medicine at Worcester College. So each of these is going to speak for about eight minutes, after which Bill will respond quickly to them and then we will move on to your questions afterwards. Without further ado, Daniel. Daniel Kane. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, in the course of his critique of the God delusion this evening, Professor Craig has offered several arguments for the, uh, for the existence of God, and it will be impossible for me to uh, address uh, all of them, or to comment on all of them in the time available. So what I'd like to do is to focus on uh, a couple of key steps in uh, two of Professor Craig's arguments that I think are problematic. So I'd like to say something first of all about uh, the crux of Professor Craig's version of the cosmological argument, namely the second pre premise of the argument that the universe began to exist. Now citing the uh, Hawking Penrose Singularity Theorems, Professor Craig presents this second premise as an established scientific fact. Now it's true that uh, most cosmo cosmologists uh, believe that our universe began to exist at the moment of the Big Bang. But uh, physicists are also exploring the possibility that the universe was created from the death of an earlier universe. Instead of a Big Bang, the models indicate that our universe began from a kind of big bounce, with a predecessor universe contracting as it ended and then re-emerging as our new uh, expanding universe. Now if that theory proved correct, then it could mean that our universe did not have a uh, finite beginning, but is instead part of a chain of universes that expand and then contract to give rise to a brand new universe. Now, this is very much a live possibility in contemporary cosmology, so I think it is a bit more of an open question than Professor Craig suggests, whether the universe did in fact, did in fact have an absolute beginning in time. Now, Professor Craig also alludes to uh, the mathematical reasons for thinking that the universe cannot be infinite in its past. Uh, the main mathematical reason for supposing that, that an infinite series of past events could not, uh, could not exist is something like the following. Uh, it's part of the concept of an infinite series of events that it didn't start, that it never started. So it follows that if any, for any event in the series, that event had an infinite number of predecessor events. Now, that makes it extremely hard to see how we could have ever got to now. That makes it extremely hard to see how we could have ever got to the present moment. I mean, if the universe didn't start, if the universe didn't start, if for every event in the series of past events, 
there is an infinite number of predecessor events, then how do we ever manage to get? How do we manage to get to this particular event? Now, uh, considerations such as these do indeed render the notion of a uh, of an infinite series of past past events counterintuitive. Yeah, they do render the notion counterintuitive, but that something is counterintuitive doesn't entail that it's false. But something is counterintuitive doesn't entail that it couldn't exist. I mean, we used to think in philosophy that the way the world is had to conform to our intuitions, but the description of reality given by quantum mechanics shows that reality uh, at its most fundamental level ra is, is, is radically counterintuitive. So to say that something is counterintuitive or absurd or leads to counterintuitive or absurd uh, consequences, uh, I don't think uh, carries much weight and certainly isn't sufficient to establish the truth, um, certainly isn't sufficient to establish the impossibility of something. Um, what is more, we, uh, we, don't we don't seem to have a problem with the notion of an infinite uh, series of numbers. We don't have a problem with an infinite series of negative numbers, for example. So why should there be a problem with an infinite series of past events? Uh, now, standardly, this sort of objection is dealt with by drawing a distinction between potential infinities and actual infinities. Right, so the series of, neg of uh, negative numbers is a potential infinite, whereas an infinite series of past events is an actual infinite. Uh, but uh, in any, in any uh, finite region of space, in any finite region of space, if we assume that space is real, then there will, it seems to me, be an infinite number of actual subregions uh, within that uh, area of space. There will be an infinite number of actual subregions, all of finite size. You can take a region of space that's, say, a meter, a meter long, and that region will be uh, divisible into an infinite number of smaller subregions. Now, that's not a matter of potential, a potential infinite. That seems to me to be a matter of an actual infinity of spatial regions. So if space is real, that actual infinity of, re of regions is real. So I, I, for one, find it very hard to put my finger on any reason why there couldn't be an actual infinite series of events. There's no contradiction, it seems to me, involved in the notion of an infinite series of events. So I think, again, it's an open question as to whether or not the universe began to exist. Now, the second point I'd like to uh, make relates to Prof Professor Cray's claim that to prefer the multiverse hypothesis to the God hypothesis as an explanation of the fine-tuning in physics would be to violate Occam's razor. Now, you'll remember that the fine-tuning argument presupposes that there's only one actual universe with one set of values for the uh, fundamental constants. Uh, the multiverse-based objection says, well, it might be that there are, in fact, there are, in fact, multiple actual universes, each with a different uh, set of values for the fundamental constants. Now, this idea, again, seems to be taken very seriously in modern physics. If there have been trillions or perhaps even uh, an infinite number of Big Bangs, then the probability of at least one universe being able to sustain life would then be very high. Okay? Um, now, as Professor Gregg pointed out, this is the explanation which, Professor, which uh, Professor Dawkins finds most plausible. Professor Craig, on the other hand, claimed that to postulate a near-infinite uh, number of universes in order to explain our own is contrary to Occam's razor, which says that other things being equal, it's rational to prefer uh, theories that are more parsimonious. But here, I think we need to draw a distinction between qualitative parsimony, or the number or types 
the number of types or kinds of things postulated, and quantitative parsimony, the number of individual things postulated. Now, the default reading of Occam's razor is as a principle of qualitative parsimony, that is, as the principle that it's rational to prefer theories which commit us to smaller ontologies. Now, Professor Craig's defence of the fine-tuning argument relies on an unorthodox quantitative reading of Occam's razor. Yes, in a quantitative sense, it is, of course, the multiverse that violates Occam's razor, but in the standard qualitative sense of Occam's razor, it is theism which is the more extravagant hypothesis. On the multiverse hypothesis, we are only multiplying individual entities, whereas on the God hypothesis, we're multiplying kinds of entities. We're therefore inflating our ontology. So I think it's hard to rule out the possibility of a multiverse, just as it's hard to rule out the possibility of an infinite series of events. And so we're left not with theism or atheism, but rather agnosticism. So in conclusion, I'd just like to say that I think Professor Craig and Professor Dawkins are uh, too bold, as it were, um, in thinking that they know that God does or does not exist. It seems to me that we are all profoundly ignorant as to whether God, God uh, exists or not. So the permission, position I commend to you this evening, then, is one of sceptical agnosticism, according to which uh, the, the knowledge of the existence or non-existence of God is beyond our cognitive reach. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daniel. Some very in good food for thought there. Now I'm going to ask Stephen Priest to respond. Thank you very much, Peter. I should say that I have no prior or previous religious commitment whatsoever. I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in trying to solve philosophical problems. For decades, I was some kind of uh, materialist and reductivist in my thinking. Now, as a matter of fact, it's pretty much impossible, it turns out, to solve the really fundamental problems about the universe without recourse to theology, without recourse to the existence of God, the immortality of the soul, and the freedom of will. I don't particularly desire this conclusion, um, uh, like most people in a way recently, or over the last so many decades, I was brought up to be um, suspicious of religious institutions and skeptical of religious beliefs. So I think that the answers to philosophical questions are theological. I think that the academic subject called philosophy exists through a lack of spiritual understanding or huge misconceptions about what spirituality is. Now, some of these misconceptions about religion and spirituality are, sh are shared by theists as well as um, atheists. Now, I'll just mention two misconceptions. One misconception is that the whole business um, is a matter of belief or disbelief. This is not right. It seems to me fundamentally a matter of knowledge. There's spiritual knowledge, and it's possible to have spiritual knowledge, and it's possible to lack spiritual knowledge, and the knowledge is of the nature of acquaintance or experience. It's not of uh, centrally or paradigmatically of a propositional nature. Now, the other huge misconception is that um, 
if there is uh, spiritual reality, or as the Dalai Lama puts it, ultimate uh, reality, or if there is God, the other misconception is that God is a being, or in some way a thing, but not a physical thing, but an immaterial thing. Now, God is not um, being-like or thing-like. Now, I'll just very briefly mention three philosophical questions um, which show that we need to endorse a kind of theology or a kind of spirituality in order to do philosophy adequately or to stand any chance of answering the questions. Now, the first philosophical question is about time, the second philosophical question is about existence, and the third one is about you. Now, the hardest part, contrary to popular belief, the hardest part of doing philosophy is not answering the questions, it's understanding the questions. It's understanding the questions. There are very few people, even, I would say, teaching philosophy professionally in the West, who understand philosophical questions in their profundity. In fact, I'd say that philosophy is essentially stuck in the 18th century. And, um, and uh, so sort of arguing for and against the existence of this uh, being and um, based on um, uh, uh, the view that metaphysics is impossible or can't be done. Um, Stephen Hawking says that uh, philosophy is dead. Well, if philosophy is dead, it committed suicide. Human can't. Uh, um, both you know, commi committed, committed uh, su suicide. But, but uh, philosophy is not dead. It's just um, it hasn't. It's stalled. It's stalled 200 years ago. It's within a kind of. I mean, I mean, in the, in the, in 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 this millennium, there are two huge pieces of human understanding which have yet to be digested by philosophy, which make a colossal difference. One of these is um, the philosophical implications of quantum physics, which my colleague Daniel Craig mentioned. And, um, and, uh, and, and the other is uh, Heidegger's thinking, Heidegger's, the thinking of Martin Heidegger, which is yes, yet to be fully digested and understood in European and North American philosophy departments. This, these, these two will bring about a revolution in philosophical understanding, but you know, rather, rather, late in, rather late in the day. Now, the three questions, just very briefly, are um, why is it now now? Uh, what is it to be, and why is a human being you? Now, if you ask this question, why is it now, now, um, simplistically or, na or naively, the, the answer is, well, this is as far as the universe has got, you know, um, wh whether it had a beginning or not. Um, the, these events happening now have, have un un unrolled or are unrolling. This is as far as the universe has got. But this is a comparatively superficial answer for many reasons. In, intuitively or centrally, uh, this is a superficial answer because, in a sense, it's always now, or it's never not now. The future is always in the past. Uh, the future is always in the, in the future, and the past is always in the past. Uh, well, maybe the future is in the past as well, but we, we have to keep it... Um, Keep it sim sim simply. It, it's certainly true that uh, any present is uh, somebody else's future and somebody else's past. I mean, we're, we're in some people's future and we're in some people's past, but never mind about that. Okay. <laughs> now, the, 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 
the, the point is that um, there's a sense in which now is timeless. There's a sense in which it's always uh, now, where this always doesn't really pick out duration or a moment or even something that's instantaneous, but um, something that's utterly uh, changeless. Now, if you are sufficiently perceptive, you can notice that it's always now. I mean, uh, members of the public who are not trained in philosophy are actually much better at spotting, oh, having these insights than <laughs> people who've been trained in philosophy uh, faculties. The other, now, the, the, the point is that um, presence is the presence of God. Presence is the presence of God. If we understand the unchanging nature of now, the nowness of now, if we understand that thoroughly, we'll realize that it has the attributes of God. It's, it's immaterial, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, timeless, it's a necessary condition for everything that happens in time, and so on. Second question, what is uh, being? There's a distinction between being and beings. I mean, by beings, I mean the Sheldonian theater, your head, uh, the Bodleian Library, this ballpoint pen, um, examination scripts to mark and so on. These, these are beings or things that are. But by being, I don't, by being or uh, being as being, I don't mean another thing like that. I mean the existing that all this is doing or what it is for any of this to be, or the being of what is, whatever is. Now, if you understand Heidegger, or if you don't like Heidegger, if you read Parmenides, you could start at the beginning of philosophy instead of at the end, if you like. If you, read, if you understand Parmenides, you'll begin to understand that the properties of being thoroughly understood are the properties of uh, God. Being is largely ineffable, necessary for uh, beings, it's infinite, it's immaterial, and so on. Uh, and the third philosophical question is, why is something you? Now, um, this is again a hard question to understand because we think we already have the answer. We think the answer lies in biology, physics, chemistry, evolution, so on. Now, I don't want to deny any of those very well-known facts of science. Let's suppose they're all true, even though because science has a history, it's very unlikely that it can be true. <laughs> now, uh, once all those facts are in about you, you were born in such and such a place, you've got such and such a mind, you have such and such a mother, such and such a father, and so on. We've not begun to understand why you view the world from this human being, this human being who you are. We've not begun to understand why all the human beings who are not you are, so to speak, arranged around you, but uh, one of the human beings is inside out or outside in, and that's its being you. We haven't begun to understand that. It certainly has no uh, materialist or scientific explanation. It's uh, Peter's holding up a big sign saying, stop. <laughs> or, uh, or it's quite a small sign, but it's got very big writing on it. <laughs> but, but, yeah. I managed to resist holding up the sign at the point when you talked about philosophy committing suicide through human cant. <laughs> Well, maybe it was Kant, maybe Hume was <laughs> Thank you very much for that very provocative contribution, Stephen. And now, John Parrington, lecturer in pharmacology, tutored medicine at Worcester. Thank you. Well, when I accepted the invitation to speak today, it felt a little bit like uh, I was thinking of some biblical phrases 
like sacrificial lamb and into the lion's den because I'm the atheist who's supposed to be I guess representing some of the, the views of Richard Dawkins here but and also as I'm only a scientist and not a philosopher you may find my arguments slightly cruder uh, and not quite as uh, sophisticated but I'd like to try and address what I see as the, the, the main points I think are important uh, in the question of uh, whether we can say is there a God or not. Um, okay, so uh, we've heard quite a lot about uh, the cosmos and the Big Bang and I, I think I'd echo some of the things that Daniel uh, said really in that we have to be very careful not to oversimplify what we uh, see as a situation about uh, the origin of the universe because certainly it can seem a very straightforward thing Big Bang, everything starts in this tiny spot, nothing came before it. And yet if you look at the, uh, the, scientific the physical science community, actually you do find a whole range of ideas. So even in The Guardian today, Professor Jeff Forshaw uh, of the University of Manchester, a physicist there, was saying that actually it's, it's a mistake to think of uh, that everything there was necessarily nothing before the Big Bang. Because that may be true if you're looking at the, the, the visible universe, but there's more and more awareness that there may be a lot more to the universe than what we can see around us. There's interest in dark matter and things like that that may actually have existed before the Big Bang. So I do think we've got to be very careful when we assume that there was nothing uh, before the Big Bang. So that's one point. Uh, obviously another key point that, that's been raised tonight uh, by Bill Craig is the um, business about the physical constants that, that, uh, that govern life, the idea that the, the precise physical constants uh, that were there at the, start, at the Big Bang are somehow the most compatible with life. And yet here again I think we have to be careful not to assume there's, there's a consensus on this question. There are, for example, theoretical scientists like Victor Stenger who have modelled the universe using a different set of physical constants and actually come up with quite a, a complex kind of universe. Not necessarily one that would harbour human life, but there again we have a potential problem because if we assume that the only kind of life uh, intelligent life uh, is, is of the sort that we associate with ourselves, it's, it's human life. I, I think that can show an anthropocentric principle in which we, we, we can't really think beyond uh, what we know around us. So I think again we've got to be careful that we uh, don't see that there's actually all sorts of other possibilities even, uh, even with these different uh, physical constants. But you know, let's say that, that there really is a, a very finely tuned universe. Um, I don't quite see why uh, this argument that, the, you know, that, that, that there may be multiple universes uh, and that kind of thing that have been put forward by Bill Craig uh, at all lead to the idea that the only alternative is, is a god. I, can think, I think, if anything, it shows that there's an ignorance uh, about the whole process and, and, and in a sense w things are much more backward really in what we know about cosmology compared to what we know about my own field which is, which is biology. Um, but also I think the big problem I have with the idea that if we postulate a God to explain all these things that somehow solves the problem is this, this being, this, this being that's outside space and time seems to me because it's so unknowable it doesn't actually take us any real further in understanding the universe and in a sense I think we're in a, it's in a similar position really to what we might have been uh, say 300 years ago if we'd been debating this question it's almost certainly we wouldn't have been talking about cosmology and I think it's actually a potential weakness in, in, in religion uh, that we're now debating this mostly on the grounds of cosmology whereas you know 300 years ago it would have been it would have been all really about uh, life around us and the fact that God was supposed to have a hand in the, in the creation of life. Actually, uh, we probably wouldn't have been having this debate because I'd have probably been hauled off and burned at the stake for heretical views. But let's assume that we could have had the debate. Um, you know, we would have been talking about how God had his hand in, in all the creation of the diverse forms of life around us. Um, and yet, I as a biologist, 
uh, don't see any real sign at all uh, of that hand of God in, 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 the, in, in life uh, that we see around us. And I say this as a geneticist, somebody who's very used to thinking about the way that genes work within the body. Uh, and that seems to me a potential problem for religion because, all right, you could say, well, God set everything off, but that seems to me a minor role compared to the idea of this all-powerful God that somehow intervenes and, 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 and creates life and you know, even sort of um, shapes life uh, along the way. Uh, and I think there's a problem there for religion because I think Darwin's theory of evolution really has shown that there's no need for a creator uh, to explain all the, the full diversity of life around us. Now, obviously it's possible, again, I, I think one, one thing I would say, even though I consider myself an atheist, I don't see it as possible to actually um, disprove uh, the, the idea that there's God. Neither, that neither, I do think, neither do I think that we can prove uh, there is a God. Um, but one thing that's, one thing you could imagine obviously is that somehow God is, is, is set in evolution going, maybe even intervenes uh, to push evolution along and yet I don't see uh, any sign of that and, and one of the arguments I might put forward in, in favour of that idea is the idea that things are so exquisitely designed, life is so exquisitely designed that that uh, implies that um, maybe God did, did set evolution up. Um, and yet, if you look at life, actually, one of the interesting things is how badly designed it can often be. So I say this as someone who studies the genome. If you look at the genome, uh, you don't I mean, although it's an incredible thing, it all hangs together. We have this amazing thing called life that comes out of the genome. But there's a huge amount of redundancy um, and, 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 and potential problems with the genome. And just think about the, our own genomes. Two to three percent of that genome actually makes up the protein coding genes uh, that, that make up our bodies. Apparently, 90, you know, over 90 percent is, is just junk DNA. Got to be a bit careful because we may find out the junk's not quite as junky as, as all that. And, and I'm quite aware of, of the, the dangers of over-assuming uh, things from what we know now. But, but certainly, there's, there's a huge, you know, it seems as if the genome is just stuffed full of parasitic elements bits of retrovirus, retroviruses, all that kind of thing left over. I find it hard to reconcile this with, with the idea of someone somehow designing this. But I think the other problem is that Darwin's theory of natural selection essentially shows, um, shows that there is no real need for uh, a designer creating all this. It, it, random chance really can explain it all. And, and evolution, uh, natural selection itself, is a perfectly adequate um, uh, driver of the process. Now, that's what I want to say in favour of atheism, and, in, and I guess it's, it's along the lines of what Richard Dawkins maybe would have said, I just want to end with the last minute and a bit uh, by talking about some of the, the problems I have with, with Dawkins' book, uh, and I'm only going to be able to say very little about that. And one of the problems I have with Dawkins' book is the fact that, although I think he puts forward some very good ideas for, uh, despite what Bill has, has said, some very good ideas uh, in, 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 against the idea of a God, what I find most lacking in his book is any real sense of uh, why, uh, why religion has, has a resonance today and why it, it's still such a powerful force. And that could be seen in, in a kind of bad way. You know, the guys who flew the plane into the Twin Towers could be seen as the, what Dawkins sees as the rational side of religion, or it could be seen in, in the very good way in which people come together and, uh, and, and do good things in the world because of their religious <coughs> beliefs. And many of my, I'm mean, quite a political person, many of my political heroes, Malcolm X, Malcolm L Martin Luther King, um, you know, the, these are very religious people. I, I think their religion is actually a big part of why they went out and, and tried to change the world. But so the problem I have with Dawkins' account really is there's no real sense of the, I mean, material reasons for why religion is so powerful and why it spreads. Um, but as I'm running out of time I will have to leave it at that. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much, John. We've heard three very interesting contributions there, and I'm now going to invite Bill to respond to them. Thank you. When I was told that if Richard Dawkins didn't show up for this debate, I would have three Oxford panelists responding to me instead, I was wishing and hoping that Richard Dawkins would show up. Uh, three on one seemed to me much worse odds than uh, one on one, and I, I think you could see why. Um, but I thank the panelists for their interesting and provocative responses. Uh, two of the arguments that I discussed were mentioned by the panelists, the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument. Let me say in response to Daniel Keem that if I do sometimes seem too bold in my assertion of these arguments, it's simply because I am really convinced that the premises are true. I, I think that the evidence for these premises is very good, but that doesn't mean you need to have that sort of boldness. Uh, you can simply say, that these arguments make it reasonable to believe that uh, a personal creator and designer of the universe exists, and that's enough. Now, what about the premise that the universe began to exist? Here both uh, Dr. Kame and Dr. Parrington object that there may be and are models of the universe in which there is a prior contracting phase to this, mo uh, this present expansion. But the problem with those sorts of oscillating theories are at least twofold. First, thermodynamically, they face a, a very difficult problem, namely entropy is conserved from cycle to cycle. And that has the effect of generating a longer cycle time and a larger expansion radius with each cycle. So that as you trace the cycles back in time, they get smaller and smaller and smaller until you finally come to a beginning. So that such a model has an infinite future, but not an infinite past. Secondly, as the universe recontracts, it encounters quantum fluctuations. Uh, this is called BKL chaos, which would prevent the subsequent expanding phase. Here's what Alexander Vilenkin says about this. He says, you can avoid the theorem by postulating the universe was contracting prior to some time. This sounds as if there is nothing wrong with having contraction prior to expansion. But the problem is that a contracting universe is highly unstable. Small perturbations would cause it to develop all sorts of messy singularities, so it would never make it to the expanding phase. And that's exactly why infinitely precise fine-tuning is required on these oscillating models. So I don't think that these really do help to restore a plausibly um, tenable model of an infinite past. Now, Dr. Kim also interacts with the philosophical argument for the finitude of the past. How can we get to today if there has to be an infinite number of prior events occur first? Notice he doesn't ever answer that question. He just says that sometimes our intuitions fail. Well, sure, sometimes, but it seems to me that it's quite reasonable to go with your intuitions unless and until you have some defeater for them, some reason to think that that's not the case, and we don't have that sort of a, a defeater. Now he says, but you can have an infinite series of negative numbers. Uh, how is that any different? Well, the critical difference between numbers and events in time is the tense of the events. As uh, Dr. Priest emphasized, there's a property of nowness or presentness. There's temporal becoming, whereas 
numbers just exist tenselessly, timelessly as it were. So there is no successive synthesis to get to a certain number by enumerating them first. Uh, in fact, it, what it would be more like would be someone who claims to have counted down all the negative numbers ending at zero today, negative three, negative two, negative one. And such a task, it seems to me, is absurd because before any number could be counted, there would always be another number that would have had to have been counted first. So the problem lies in temporal becoming. He says, but don't we have examples of actual infinites in the, the uh, spatial continuum? I would say no, there's no reason whatsoever to think that space is really continuous. It can be modeled as continuous mathematically, but there's no grounds for thinking that space really is uh, continuous in the way described. I would agree with Aristotle that a, a, a line or a distance is logically prior to any subdivisions that we make on the line. So that this is merely an infinity in potentiality, not an actuality. By contrast, an infinite past would be an infinite series of actual events of similar duration piling up without beginning. And then it really does occasion all sorts of interesting problems. I'd love to give some more examples, but time is fleeting. So I don't think we've got any good reasons for denying either the philosophical or scientific evidence for the beginning. What about the fine tuning of the universe? Here it was suggested that we uh, can appeal to multiverse models, but I, I dealt with that. In order to be qualitatively simple, you need to have a single simple mechanism that generates the many worlds. Otherwise, it's not simple, and I examined the mechanisms Dawkins proposes and showed that they're inadequate. So uh, the world ensemble is not qualitatively simple in the absence of some simple mechanism. Dr. Kame uh, also um, mentions that we would be positing a new kind of entity by positing an intelligent designer. Well, that's clearly not true. We posit intelligent designers and minds all the time for artifacts that we discover. In this case, we would simply be saying that there's a cosmic intelligence or designer, but it's a familiar inference that we make all the time. Now, Dr. Parrington says, well, Victor Stinger tries to deny fine-tuning. With all due respect to Professor Stenger, whom I have debated on this subject, I think his conclusions about the fine-tuning are erroneous, and frankly, they are rejected by the vast majority of physicists. Sir Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, says that everywhere physicists look, they see more examples of fine-tuning. This is highly unlikely to disappear with any future physics. Um, Dr. Pinkton says, it, well, but you could have some non-human life. Certainly you could. We're talking about any kind of interactive uh, life. Uh, and in the absence of fine-tuning, what you need to understand is you wouldn't even have matter. You wouldn't even have chemistry, much less planets, where life of any sort could, could evolve. In the absence of fine-tuning, you have just utter waste. Um, he says, well, this is an appeal to ignorance. N no, it's not. It's an appeal to which of these three alternatives? physical necessity, chance, or design is the best explanation. And I think there are substantive objections to physical necessity or chance. This is by no means simply an appeal to ignorance. He says, um, but this being is unknowable. Why think that it's God? Note that I didn't infer to God. 
I said there's a designer of the universe. Whether or not that designer is God is going to be a further step. Um, moreover, I think we do know some of the attributes of this cosmic intelligence. It would clearly be an intelligent being. It would therefore be a personal being. It would be a, an enormously uh, smart being in order to design the laws of physics and the constants and quantities of nature. That gives us part of a cumulative case for theism. Dr. Parrington uh, says Darwin showed that we don't need a creator. Even if that were true for biological complexity, the thing about the fine-tuning argument is that it does an end run about bio around biological evolution and goes right back to the cosmic initial conditions. In order for Darwinian evolution to take place, you have to have this incomprehensibly complex balance of initial conditions and constants given in the Big Bang itself, and any improbability of life arising through genetic mutation and natural selection just layers on more improbability. So this argument is immune to all of the emotionally laden debates concerning creationism and evolution. So I think this argument also is a, is a very plausible argument. I don't know of any good reason to think that physical necessity or chance are better explanations than design. Finally, Dr. Priest's uh, interesting comments. Um, he thinks that philosophy exists through a misconception of spirituality and that philosophy is stalled. And here I have to simply beg to disagree. I think that philosophy, uh, and particularly from a Christian point of view, is an exercise in which Christians should be deeply engaged. I take it that Anselm was right in affirming fides quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. And philosophy is rightly a handmaid of theology which can be very useful. And I would note that over the last 50 years uh, in Anglo-American philosophy, there has been a veritable renaissance of Christian philosophy that is changing the face of this discipline. So that philosophy, far from being stalled, I think is, is being renewed. Um, and I'm very enthusiastic about what is happening in that regard. One of the other, well, he asks, why is it now, now? Now, it seems to me that that question is trivial. That's like saying, why is it here, here? Uh, why is it now, now? It has to be now, now. That's a trivial question. The more interesting question is, why is it now? I think that is a philosophically significant question. And I've written an article on this, actually, and I think that the, the best mileage you can go toward answering that is that there was a beginning to time, that there was a beginning to the universe. Otherwise, it becomes inexplicable why, out of all the infinite moments of past time, it's now. Why this moment? Why, why 2011 is now? So I think this is one more reason to think the past is finite. He asks, what is being, and contrasts being with beings. But here I have to respectfully disagree and say, I do think that God is a being. Uh, God is a personal being who is the creator and designer of the universe and the locus of absolute goodness, whom we can know by acquaintance, as he said. But there's no reason to think that one compromises God's necessity or aseity by affirming that God is a literal being. Now he's not, as one British journalist remarked, a chap. I think that's right. We shouldn't think of God as a sort of chap. <laughs> But nevertheless, he, he is a necessary being who is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, uncaused, perfectly good, omnipotent, omniscient, and all of the rest of these superlative attributes. 
And finally, yes, why is something you? And I would take this to be equivalent to the question, why do you exist? Why is something you is the same as saying, why do you exist? And I would find the answer to that question in God's providence and purpose. He has a plan for your life. And it's important as we go through life that we not miss that purpose for which God created us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, we've got some very interesting questions. I haven't yet finished reading all of them, but I will try to get through them and pick out what seem to be uh, the ones likely to provoke a particularly interesting discussion. And I notice that they're coming uh, in the directions of several of our speakers. So, <clears throat> I'm going to start with a question to Daniel. What is your opinion of the moral argument, which is an argument that Bill put, but which wasn't dealt with by any of the panelists? Did, yeah. Okay, so just to recap on the moral argument, the moral argument states, first of all, that if mo objective moral values... Is this turned on? Yeah. Yeah. If objective moral values exist, then God exists. Uh, that's the first premise. Premise two is objective moral values exist, Therefore, God exists. Now, uh, I suppose I'd, the main thing I want to say about this argument is that it uh, seems to presuppose that theism is the only possible foundation for uh, objective moral values, and I don't think that is uh, clearly the case. Um, the existence of objective moral values don't, it seems to me, uh, depend for their existence on uh, the existence of God. There are other possibilities that we can think of as a foundation of objective moral values. Um, I mean, first of all, we might be uh, Platonists, yes, who think that ob uh, objective moral values constitute an entirely separate uh, realm of um, uh, reality. Alternatively, we might, we might be dualists who think that in addition to the realm of matter, there is a realm of, of mind or spirit, uh, uh, a non-physical dimension to reality. Uh, objective moral values that might be said uh, exist in this non-physical realm. Or thirdly, and this is the view which is endorsed by most contemporary uh, moral philosophers who would uh, adhere to a, a form of moral realism, a form of, mor form of moral objectivism, uh, we might be uh, what's called, um, we might endorse a view that's known as non-reductive materialism, according to which uh, uh, the world is composed of uh, fundamental constituents which are material or physical entities, uh, but these aren't the only parts of the universe. These aren't the only parts of uh, reality. Reality um, uh, also consists of non-physical entities which are causally but not ontologically reducible to, the, uh, to matter, to the um, fundamental um, constituents of matter. Um, now, uh, contemporary moral philosophers who endorse a form of moral realism gen tend to subscribe to some form of non-reductive materialism according to which values supervene on uh, material reality. So, um, 
Bill's argument, it seems to me, presupposes that theism is the only possible foundation for intrinsic val moral values, but there are several other uh, possible uh, foundations, it seems to me. Thank you. you <laughs> Uh, incidentally, obviously it's very completely impossible to give an adequate treatment of any of these issues here. There's, there's lots of interesting stuff to, re to read on this, not least um, on, on, the, uh, on the web. So I hope uh, you will be encouraged to do that. To Bill, um, surely if everything that begins to exist is true, then it's true in space and time. Yet the universe isn't in space and time but is space and time. So why does it need to be subject to a law inside itself? I think you get the idea. I, I do. I, I think that this is a very common mistake of thinking of the principle of causality as a sort of physical law which holds only in the universe, but not of the universe, sort of like the law of gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. But the causal principle that whatever begins to exist has a cause is not a physical principle. Uh, it is a metaphysical principle that basically says being doesn't come from non-being. Being only arises from being. And that seems to me to be an extraordinarily plausible principle that's been recognized from the time of Parmenides. Non-being has no properties no potentialities, no powers. For the idea that being could arise from non-being is really worse than magic when, when you think about it. So it seems to me that Parmenides and these other Greek philosophers like Plato were quite right in thinking that being only arises from being. So that there's something that begins to exist, there needs to be some other actual being that is responsible for bringing it into existence. And that's a metaphysical principle that would certainly apply to the universe as a whole. If the universe began to exist and came into being, uh, it surely has some sort of transcendent cause which would explain why it came into existence uh, and therefore exists rather than nothing. And now a perhaps slightly cheeky question for Stephen. Um, if philosophy has gone so wrong, why are you still a philosopher? <laughs> and uh, if, if philosophy is based on spiritual misunderstandings, why aren't you a spiritualist? <laughs> um, well, because I hope to put philosophy right. I mean, as a uh, finite and fallen being, in my own small way, I do attempt some spiritual understanding. Uh, I, would, I would like to be a theologian, but I'm only a philosopher. The 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 I think, in a sense, the, the, the theologians are the, are the fundamental problem solvers, and in philosophy, we tend to sk skate around the uh, surface. I mean, despite what... Uh, I mean. I admire the clarity of uh, argument, the pure intelligence, the honesty and the uh, rigour with which the philosophy has been done this evening. But if we uh, 
really did have spiritual lives, we wouldn't need to be arguing for and against the existence of uh, God. If we lived in the presence of God, if we knew beyond the shadow of doubt through direct acquaintance that God is all around us and pervades us, and uh, in a fundamental way, there's nothing but God, God and uh, creation. We wouldn't need to engage in philosophical arguments for and against the existence of a being. That's what, that's what I mean by, uh, by uh, spirituality making philosophy uh, re redundant. Okay. You won't be surprised to know that the vast majority of the questions are to Bill. Um, I'm going to put these ones together, Bill, because they're somewhat similar. How can you reconcile God's unchangeable nature with his inconsistent dealings with humankind? How do you reconcile the doctrine of the Trinity with divine simplicity? So the issue, God's immutability, simplicity, are they consistent with other characteristics attributed to God? Over to you. I don't think that God is unchangeable. So the question is based on assumption I don't hold. What I argued was that without the universe, we must get back to an, a changeless first cause. But notice I didn't say unchangeable, just de facto changeless. But in fact, I think at the moment of creation, God enters into time in virtue of his causal relationship with the world and then sustains relationships with the world from that moment on. So my own studied view is that God is changeless and timeless without the universe, but changing and temporal since the beginning of time and the creation of the universe. Now, I don't think God acts inconsistently in a moral sense. It seems to me that he is always acting consistently with his own nature. So that's not a problem. But I do think God uh, changes in his activities, in his knowledge uh, uh, as time goes on. Again, with respect to the Trinity, I don't hold to a strong doctrine of divine simplicity. You need to understand that the doctrine of divine simplicity advocated by the high medieval theologians was a radical doctrine which says that God literally has no properties. Um, that there is no distinction in him between his essence, what he is, and his existence, that he is. And I don't hold to that sort of radical view. I think that God is simple in the way that I described in response to Richard Dawkins, namely, he's not a physical object made of parts. But I would say that God has a diversity of properties, omnipotence, omniscience, moral perfection, these are not the same property. And I think that God is a trinity of persons. So I don't hold to the doctrine of divine simplicity that the medievals did, and I don't think that this is a doctrine that's biblical in any case. This is an imposition uh, on biblical theology that springs out of Neoplatonism and the conception of God as the one who is beyond all diversity and um, complexity. So those would be simply some theological views that I don't share. Don't make yourself too comfortable. <laughs> um, if consciousness is just a material phenomenon, does it 
disprove God or at least the soul. Another question in the same spirit. Aren't your arguments misleading when it comes to unembodied minds? Doesn't science tell us, tell us that there are only embodied minds? Well, science certainly doesn't tell us that there are only embodied minds. Um, what scientific evidence is that there are no unembodied minds? You would have to have scientific evidence against the existence of God because that's what God would be if he exists, would be an unembodied mind. There is no such evidence. So certainly science doesn't disprove the reality or, or the possibility of unembodied minds or even disembodied minds, say people when they die and the soul is separated from the body. There's nothing that proves that there are no such things as disembodied souls uh, after death. So uh, no, it, it, that doesn't disprove it. Now, if consciousness were shown to be um, either merely a physical phenomenon or something that was dependent upon a physical substratum, would that disprove um, God? There are Christian materialists, actually, like Peter Van Inwagen and Nancy Murphy, who are not dualists as I am. I am a substance dualist who thinks there's a difference between the soul and the body. But there are Christian philosophers and theologians who are materialists when it comes to human being. And they would say that God is of a different order than human beings, that God, in fact, is a, a, an immaterial um, spiritual being, but that he's quite different from human beings. That's not my own view, but I think we have to make room for such people because they do exist. There are. Christian materialists, uh, whether they're right or wrong, they're out there. Um, and so I don't think you can say it's flatly inconsistent, but you would have to allow uh, on that view that human beings and God would be radically diverse from each other uh, because God would be an example of a consciousness that doesn't have a material substratum where these philosophers would think that human beings are. I, I would prefer to say that in fact you cannot offer a reductive materialist or even a sort of uh, supervenient, non-reductive uh, materialist view of the soul, the mental life, intentionality, uh, mental causation, and so forth. And so I would hold that God and human beings are similar in the sense of being spirits, in one case embodied, in the other case unembodied. Now a couple of questions, uh, representative of some others, on the problem of evil. And one, why did your infinitely smart designer invent, is it evil? You get the idea. Um, and another one, uh, Dawkins accuses you of saying that genocide would be acceptable in some contexts. Have you ever said anything which warrants this view and what do you actually think? And I take that to be related to the problem of evil in that uh, the claim would be that if you take the Bible as representing the word of God, it suggests that he might be evil rather than good if he in fact did advocate genocide. I am a Christian theologian and so will answer this from a Christian perspective. 
from a Christian perspective, God didn't invent evil. Rather, he created free moral agents who have the ability either to obey God and do his will or to seek lesser goods rather than have their wills oriented toward God as the supreme good. And evil, as I understand it, is a privation of right order in the creaturely will. It is a, a, an absence of being correctly ordered toward God as the supreme good and focused instead on, an, on lesser good. So evil is the byproduct of the misuse of human freedom, which is necessary for us to be moral agents who make significant moral choices. Apart from that, we would be mere animals or robots or puppets, and that's not the kind of uh, being that God wants. Now, I have not in any way ever said that God ha has commanded or could command genocide. That's an unsympathetic misrepresentation of what I said. What I was dealing with are these narratives in the Hebrew Bible concerning God's commands to Israel to go into the land of Canaan or the modern-day land of Palestine and to drive out the Canaanite clans or tribes that were inhabiting the land. And in the Hebrew Bible, God commands Israelites to go in there and to slaughter uh, any of the Canaanites that uh, oppose them, whether man, woman, or child, they are to be exterminated. Now, anybody who takes the Bible to be historical has got to wrestle with these difficult texts. The, the question is, how could a God who is all loving, all good, and all holy issue such commands? Um, and why would he do so? How, is there some kind of internal inconsistency here? And what I argued was that when you look into these in the context of the narrative, you find that God held his people Israel in Egypt for 400 years before bringing them into the land of Canaan because he said the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet complete. These people were not yet so debauched, so reprobate, that God would judge them. And so he held his people in abeyance until the iniquity of these Canaanite tribes was so pronounced, so they were so vile and so evil, that God finally used Israel as his means of bringing judgment upon these tribes in the same way that God would later use pagan nations like Babylon and Assyria to judge his own people, Israel, by allowing them to come in and sweep through the land and conquer the people. So that this represented God's judgment upon the, these uh, Canaanite tribes. And when you read the ancient non-biblical literature about these tribes, this was a culture that was incredibly evil. Clay Jones has written a, an article on this in Philosophia Christi in which he looks at some of these ancient texts. And the sort of the, the bestiality and uh, human sacrifice and the mockery of, of God that characterized this culture was really, really vile. And, and it, it raises the hair on your neck to read these texts of what these people were like. And it, this story of the conquest of Canaan only comes after the story of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And you may remember in that story, 
Abraham argues with God and says, God, if there are 50 righteous people in these cities, will you, will you destroy them? Will you destroy the good along with the unjust? And God says, no, for the sake of the 50, I will not destroy them. And then like a Middle Eastern merchant, uh, Abraham bargains with God. Well, God, if there are 40 in the city, will you destroy it? God says, no, for the sake of the 40 righteous people, I will not destroy it. And God says, uh, Abraham says, oh God, don't be impatient with me, but if there are 10 righteous men in the city, will you destroy it? And God says, no, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. And Abraham doesn't dare to argue any further with God. But the purpose of this story, which comes in the narrative prior to the conquest of Canaan, I think, is to emphasize that God is not going to judge these people until they are utterly, utterly deserving of judgment uh, because they are so debauched. So um, the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is illustrative of why God held his people for 400 years before bringing them into the land. And when he brought them into the land to judge Canaan, what was that judgment? It was not to commit genocide. That is an utter misrepresentation. There was no racial war here. There was no command to pursue and hunt down the Canaanites and exterminate them all. What was the command? The command was to drive them out of the land. The land is what is, was and remains so all important to these Middle Eastern people. Who has the land? And what God was doing was destroying these Canaanite uh, petty kingdoms as nation states. He was destroying these nation states in effect by dispossessing of the, them of their land and bringing in the Israelites and giving the land over to Israel as the land of Israel, the promised land. And if these Canaanite tribes had simply fled before the advancing armies of Israel, no one would have been killed. There was no command to hunt down the Canaanites, no intention to kill them all off and eliminate them. It was only those who stayed behind to fight that would be killed. Uh, and in fact, there is nothing in the narrative to suggest that any women or children were killed. There is no narrative whatsoever that says that anybody other than combatants were killed in this cleansing of the land. And we really don't know how many actually were killed. This was apparently a gradual sort of dispossessing of the land that these tribes occupied. So the question is then, well, how could a god who is all holy and just and loving, command such a thing. And I think you can make sense of this through a divine command morality, which says that our moral duties are constituted by God's commands, so that when he issues commands to us, these become our moral duties. So Israel and the armies of Israel became, in effect, the instrument by which God judged these Canaanite peoples. The adults, deserved the judgment that they, they received if they stayed behind. Now, the more difficult problem is the children. How could God command that the children be killed because these are innocent? And I think what I would want to say there is that God has the right to give and take life as he sees fit. Children die all the time, every day. Uh, people's lives are cut short. God is under no obligation whatsoever to prolong anyone's life another second. So he has the right to give and take life as he chooses. Moreover, if you believe as I do in the salvation of infants or children who die, what that meant was that these 
the, the death of these children meant their salvation. They were the recipients of an infinite good as a result of their earthly phase of life being terminated. The problem is that people look at this from a naturalistic perspective and think life ends at the grave. But in fact, this was the salvation of these children and would be far better for them than continuing to be raised, say, in this reprobate uh, Canaanite culture. So I don't think God wronged anybody in commanding this to be done. He didn't wrong the adults because they were deserving of capital punishment. He didn't wrong the children if there were any that were killed, which we don't know, because God has the right to take their lives. And he, in fact, uh, in fact, they were the recipients of a great good. So I don't think there was anybody that was morally wronged in this affair. So it seems to me that it is possible for God to do so. I think only one thing needs to be added, and that is that God had morally sufficient reasons for issuing such an extraordinary command. It, it needs to be understood as how extraordinary and out of the ordinary this, this command was. It is associated with the conquest of of Canaan and the dispossession of the land and giving it to these people. And God, I think, had morally sufficient reasons for doing this because um, these people were due for judgment and by issuing so harsh an object lesson to Israel, by using them as his instruments for bringing judgment in this way, he emphasized to them, as nothing else could do, how they were to be a holy, people set apart for God himself, and not to follow after the pagan deities of Israel's neighbors, not to betray uh, their faith and, and apostatize and follow these Canaanite gods like Baal and, and Molech and others. This was an, uh, an object lesson to them to preserve Israel and, their, and, and the salvation of these people, through which, of course, the instrumentality of Israel, he would eventually bring the Christ into the world and effect the salvation of the entire world through Christ. So I think God had morally sufficient reasons for doing such an extraordinary uh, thing, uh, which is really unique and uh, not something to be repeated or expected in any other time or age. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.